0: Friday, the first day they lane from the portion of Yisrael, where it talks about Kabbalah Satorah, where it talks about the Ten Commandments. We'll learn the part right before that, since that's the part that most people ignore somewhat. And we'll take out a few points from the Psukim, and we'll go from there into the different Gemaras on the um, issues. It starts off that on Rosh Chodesh Sivan, that's the third month, Bachodesh Ashlishi, on the third month when the Jews came out of Egypt. Bayom Hazer Midbar Sinai, they came to Midbar Sinai. Immediately there is a significant comment made on the fact that the Torah says Bayom Hazer, today. Bayom Hazer implies on this day. Generally speaking, when the Torah wants to talk about a certain day Bayom it's ha-hu. Bayom HaHu. Exactly. Why then does it say Bayom Hazer? Does anybody know the answer to that? Why Bayom Hazer on this day? Chazal say to teach you that Torah should be new in your eyes as if it was given that day. You should always have the same vigor and freshness when you learn Torah as if it was given on that day, as if today it was given. And the truth is we have to look at Shavuos in that light as well. Not that it's a commemoration of something that occurred 3,300 years ago, but that it's something that occurred on this particular day which we have gone around that cycle 3,300 times. We have traveled the circuit 3,300 times and I've come back to this day that it was given. Not that this occurred 3,300 years ago and we're just commemorating it. But that's what we say, Bayom Ha'zebo, Midbar Sinai. However, there's another significant point that one can say from this, which is the following. It's a very strange place for Chazal to teach us this lesson because this occurred a week before they got the Torah. So you see from this that the significance of the Jew accepting the Torah is not necessarily look at the Torah as if today it was given. That's God's job. The job of the Jewish person is to feel the same kheshik, the same desire to receive the Torah. See, there are two aspects of Torah. You know, we refer to the receiving of the Torah as Kabolos Torah. But there's another expression that's used, which is Matan Torah. Matan Torah means the giving of the Torah. Kabolos Torah means the receiving of the Torah. That means Torah is received and Torah is given. Matan Torah also means a present. It was a present from Hashem. So now the truth of the matter is Torah was given to the Jews as a present. It was a gift from God. So what then is the Kabbalah of Torah? What then is the receiving of the Torah? Receiving of the Torah is the preparation, the groundwork that we lay in the fact that we desire to know the truth. Our desire to get the Torah is what we're responsible for. Then the rest comes as a gift. Everything else... All Torah now, that a person gets, is really a gift from Hashem to him. We say the same each person should receive his share of what the Torah has to offer. That's a gift from God, as we shall shortly see from some of the Gemara's. But this is what we learned from Bayom HaZef, from this particular word. Let's go a little further. Next Possek. sinai, vayachanu they encamped in the desert, vayichan shom Yisrael neged now a very strange phrase vayichan shom Yisrael and Israel encamped opposite the mountain does anybody know what's learned from this posik? vayichan shom Yisrael neged collectively as one right exactly that ishachot was probably one of the few times in Jewish history that the Jewish people united as one in acceptance of one thing they had the desire as one living organism to accept the Torah. Now, just an interesting point to bring out from this is, since it has to do with this week's Parsha, that we read, we always read the, the, the portion of Bamidbor before Shfuz. Parsha's Bamidbor. Now, um, does anybody know what does Bamidbor talk about? That entire portion? Counting. 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 That's all it talks about. Numbers. It. numbers. In fact, it's probably one of the uh, so-called most boring parts of the Torah. There's very little that occurs in Bamidbar. All you do is count over and over again, and a lot of people point to this as being a very odd thing. That you know, you see the Torah deals in trivialities, so to speak. But the truth is, if you look at it, you find that if anything, this probably shows the greatness and the divinity of the Torah so much more so than anything else. Because if you look at, it, if you just look at the way the count is, is performed. Well no, besides that you just find how everything is repeated. It's one thing you want to say the count of each tribe. But you go Livne Don, Taldosam, their uh to their families, Livesavosum to the houses of their father, the misprashemos according to the names that they have been Esim Shonda of Koyote Sava. Then it says a number. Livne Osher again, Toldosom, Livish Phosum, Lai Savosum, the Nispa Shamos. Why is that necessary? Why would the Torah even do that? Why elaborate by each particular Shaivit? The exact same phraseology when you said it once you said it twice three times just say the count of each one why go through it as if from the beginning as if we're starting to count with them again the point is that anything that's in the torah the torah being the blueprint of the world being the blueprint of creation anything that is written in the torah is etched into creation and has a significance in the next week's partial we find that you know you take a word like viseum same means the princes, the, um, the leaders of the Jewish tribes. If it's written with two yuds or one yud becomes significant. The Torah says that because of the fact that they were a little bit slack in giving the, um, in giving the Hanukkah, Samizbeah, they lost a yud from their name. What's the significance of a yud? Big deal. The point <coughs> is that if your name is written into the Torah, then that does a great deal for it's, it becomes a part of creation. It becomes part of eternity. The Jewish people, the fact that the Torah wants to point out each tribe, it's sort of like, you know, you have children. You have five children, you got to go through the same process with each child. You first teach the first child how to read A, B, C. It's tedious, you get to the second child. But the point is the second child is just as significant as the first. You love the second child the way you love the first. got to go through the whole process from the very beginning. It's boring, it's tedious, but you do it. Because this child is the only one that exists now. You look at each person as an individual as if this is the only individual in the world. And therefore, if you want to shower love and affection on that particular child, you have to be oblivious to what you did earlier. And you have to do it with the same renewed strength. You do the first child, you do the second child, you do the third one. If the Torah wants to give the blessing or to give a significance to each tribe, It can't just say, okay, same as above, same as above, same as above. Each tribe has to get their own private individual blessing, precisely because the Torah is divine. Because the Torah is so significant and it's eternal and it's part of creation, therefore each tribe has to have their numbers. So to us it's tedious and it's boring, but that's because anything is tedious and boring. When you want to teach a child ABC, it's also boring, but it doesn't mean it's not significant. The fact is, the Torah is divine that it was given by God on Sinai and the Torah wants to give a recognition of each tribe as being of great importance therefore the Torah goes through each tribe in this manner and it goes on and on to elaborate we know that we derive from one word of the Torah, from one letter, many, many laws are derived from it so if the Torah, the first Rashi says, why is there so much counting over here? to show us the great love and affection that Hashem had for the Jewish people that he counts each one like its own star its own world you know, you look up at the heavens and you look up and you see stars and sometimes you see a point of light and really it's a giant galaxy and the galaxy contains millions of stars to us it's a little speck of light in reality each one is its own world the jewish people are like stars each human being each and every one of us is significant like a star to us we don't give it significance the same way we don't give any significance to the stars but each one is a massive world I mean, a star is is like a sun, right? Each star is thousands and millions of times greater than than the entire globe. You look up and you see a galaxy, and if it's far enough away, it's one little tiny speck of light. You don't realize that it's so massive, and it's millions and millions of light years wide. And to you, it's just a point of light. But each one is significant. It's a world in itself. Each Jewish person is a world in itself. If you lose one letter from that, to us, it's only a letter. But in reality, it's, 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 it's part of creation. The Torah counts them. That's what Rashi says. Hashem counts the Jewish people like stars. Their worlds in themselves, each Jew, is an entire world in itself. Uh, the Sifonov says a very interesting thing over here. He says that what he find, interestingly enough, in this particular count in Bamidwar, where each one is counted using the title of B'mispar Shemos, According to the number of their names, says the Sephorno, that what we learn from this is, I'll just quote him because he says it better than I could say it, which is kihoya os kol echod may habar, because then each individual in that generation nechshav b'shemol had a an importance, had a significance by his name Hamor al Turoso hoishis that showed on his true character on what he really was. Names that we do nowadays are arbitrary. You call it after Aunt Joe, or Uncle Joe, rather, whatever it is. In those days, each name meant this is the, this is the person. Each individual was significant. That's what this photo says. In other words, in this particular count, and that's why the Torah goes through such great lengths to teach us this lesson, how each and every Jew was significant in himself as an individual. We shouldn't get swallowed into one mass. We have to realize the importance of every single individual. Every individual is a world in himself, and therefore, in terms of the acceptance of the Torah, you have the same chalkei nu b'sarasecha. We say that the, we say in the, in the davening on Shavuos that give us our portion into the Torah. Each person has their own part of the Torah, and what you what you are capable of getting, no one else is able to have. Every person has their own share in in the Torah now this would seem though a little bit at variance with what we just saw over here we just saw over here that all the jewish people were united as one individual here we see the significance of every individual member of the jewish people and here we see that they're all as one the truth is we once discussed discuss this similar to the concept of we talked about the fact that the two things seem to be opposites how on the one hand you oh, i guess you missed that one how hill says if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? The idea is that a person has to feel himself as part of a whole, as part of the Jewish people. You shouldn't lose your individuality. The individual is important for what he is. However, we have to feel ourselves part of one giant organism, the Jewish people. There has to be a certain unity of action, but then each person has to be significant for himself. And that's what we learn from the, from the Pasha of Bamidbar how each person was counted as an individual. In fact, the Ramban says that how were they counted? Each person passed by Moshe and Aaron. And Moshe and Aaron laid their eyes on them and gave each one his own blessing. May you fulfill what you're capable of becoming. You should fulfill your potential. And each individual has his own potential. And Only when we recognize the significance of each individual can we really appreciate the significance of the unity of Kali Yisrael. If each individual is nothing, then the mass is also nothing. When people are swallowed into a giant state like the Soviet Union, and you say, well, the main thing is the party and the state and all that. But the idea is, if you don't give any recognition to the individual, then the state is also nothing as well. And therefore, there is no significance to the state. When When you realize the sanctity of human life, then you could appreciate what a nation of Jewish people together, what they're able to produce. Let's go a little further. So Moshe goes up to Hashem. And the next passage is a very interesting passage. Why? Because it says, Moshe Oloh Moshe goes up to, um, to God on Sinai. Vayiko Elov Hashem in the hor leimor. And God told him the following. Kol so ma'er leves so shall you speak, so, so shall you say to the house of Jacob, the sagei of ne and speak to the children of Israel. Does anybody know why that doubled expression? We very in in, in prophetic writings, you find very often a uh, a poetry, and therefore there's a certain repetitiousness, you know, because you want to repeat something that's poetic license. In the Torah, the Torah is more dry, unless it gets to the poetic parts. You don't usually find "KosomalavetsiakovisageiluvneiIsrael." So shall you speak to the house of Jacob, and so shall you say to the children of Israel. Why the double expression? So, Beis Yaakov refers to the women. Kol solmar so shall you say to the women and sageid with As Chazal say, Somar is always blushing, and racha, always soft-spoken. When you speak to the women, speak more soft-spokenly. When you speak to the men, sageid, you know, sake to them. But the, if you notice, the women were spoken to first. Here we're speaking about the Torah being given and offered to the Jewish people. So the first ones that it was offered to, or told about, were the women, before the men. Now the truth is, God learned from his previous mistakes. That's why, because He once made a mistake. At least in our eyes, it came out to a mistake. Namely, He told all the That was the first time God made command, and He said, "Don't, um, don't eat from the tree." And you know, explain it afterwards to your wife. But we all know what happened as a result of telling the men and not directly communicating with the women. So Hashem decided this time, I want the Torah to last. Last time he tried it, it didn't last 24 hours. I mean, <laughs> within a few hours of the command, that's it. It was gone. It didn't work. He told it to the men first, then to the It didn't work. It didn't last. He wanted the Torah to last, and it lasted for 3,300 years. So The first thing is, speak to the women. If you speak to the women, you get there, OK. And then they're ready to let their husbands. Uh, the Medrash says this, by the way. This is all from the Medrash. The Medrash says that he decided to speak to the women first, because this is the only way the Torah is going to last. So therefore, the first thing was spoken to the women. Now, what I saw a couple of days ago a fascinating thing, which generally I didn't, I don't like this approach, but because it was said by the Maralmi Prague, I will share it with you. I generally don't follow this approach. The Maralmi Prague was a person who lived in the 16th century. And what he's famous for by many people, of course, is the golem. Everybody heard of the golem. He is the creator of the golem. He was a great Kabbalist, mystic, and he was way ahead of his time. Besides the fact he's able to make robots, but let's not even go into whether it's true or not. We, but from the writings of the Marau himself, we're able to, uh, he, he, he was considered a very great person even by the Goyen. If you go to Prague, there's a statue in City Hall of the Marau, of Rabbi Betzal Lowy, or Leo, whatever they called him there. There's he's a very imposing figure. He looks a little bit like you know, Merlin the Magician, you know those Merlin hats? That's the way he looks in that picture over there. So uh, in Prague, you'll see that. There's even a statue somewhere of the golem. But um, again, that was made a lot later. But the morale was considered very, um, you know, even by the guy they had a great deal of respect for him. Now, I've even read one of a, a work showing how he discovered the theory of relativity 400 years ago. In fact, um, I once saw the morale say certain things that seem to allude to the concept of relativity. Um, you know, the story of Joshua st- stopping the sun, and the, to the question was how it worked with the rest of the world. And he comes up with a whole concept there that very well fits into the modern theory of relativity as to how it worked, that the sun stopped, and how it affected the rest of the world. It fits in very well with the theory of relativity. He says over here something which, because he lived in the 16th century, and he wasn't an apologist for the feminist movement, therefore I give it more credence than whatever you find many rabbis saying similar stuff today, which they're doing as a reaction to the feminist movement. What he says is a very interesting point. The Gemara says, as many of you might be familiar with this, how uh, the Gemara basically says in Barakas that greater is the reward promised for women, in terms of Olam Haba, the future world, greater than that that was uh, given over for men. That's what the Gemara says. The Gemara says, so how do women get to um, the reward of Torah study if they don't, they're not obligated in Torah study? And it says basically by bringing up their children in the paths of Torah and allowing their husbands to learn. That's what the Gemara says. And we're encouraging them to learn. To which the Maral therefore asks that it would therefore seem maybe that they could have an equivalent reward, but where do we see from there a greater reward? If, you know, just helping out a husband or children to learn, why would that give you greater reward than the actual learning? Says the Maral the following that women are naturally inclined to a level of spirituality greater than men. And precisely for that reason, they don't, they're do not they not obligated in Torah study. Women, by nature, have a certain inner serenity, which is what Olam Habo is. You know, we've talked a number of times about what Olam Havah is. And basically, the idea that I've tried to mention a number of times is that Olam Havah is a place of, it's like a retirement home. That's where you rest, that's where you get your reward. This world is a world of opportunity. Life in this world does not have to be fair. It doesn't have to be apportioned that things work out fairly. It doesn't have to work out fairly. This is a life of opportunity. It's a world of action. It's very action-oriented. All of ba is the world of repose, the world where we rest, where we finally come to our peace, to our rest, to our inheritance, so to speak. That's where we get our reward. Not in this world. This is a world of opportunity. Women, based on their naturally inclined um, inner serenity and inner beauty, if you will, of being more, more, um, called more withdrawn, more hidden, more, more within, more modest, if you will, are more spiritually attuned to what Olam Hab is all about. Therefore, they don't require men by virtue of their half-bloodedness, so to speak, their they're more, they come from the element of fire, and their passion and their everything else—they require the discipline of Torah. We know that the reason why the Torah was given was basically to discipline the beast in man. It says, "Bara siyetsahara." I created the evil inclination, and the only cure for it was the Torah. So the Torah is basically there to discipline the beast in man. So men, by virtue of the fact that they have this hot temperedness, require the great discipline of Torah in order to work themselves over, in order that they should be able to. Um, to to get to Olam Haba. Women, by virtue of the fact that they are closer attuned to this spiritual state, require very little effort to be able to become worthy of Olam Haba. Therefore, their minor effort, in terms of just helping out someone else study Torah, or bringing up their children to study Torah, even a minor effort on behalf of Torah is sufficient for them to achieve their reward. For this reason, by the way, I could say that if women don't come to learn Torah, it's okay. Because as you see, they don't really need it as much. So therefore, it's enough that they made the cheesecake when the men come back and they eat it. That's also good enough. That little minor effort, baking that cheesecake, that will get them to the same place. They don't require that whole discipline of spending an entire night trying to keep yourself awake, you know, from dozing off. They don't need it. They have their inner repose, which is more spiritually in tune. Now, if I would have heard this from someone you know that says it nowadays. I wouldn't have given it too much uh, credibility, simply because most people that would say such a thing are basing it as a reaction to the feminist movements, and therefore I don't really I discount it more or less. The fact that the Marau, who besides the fact was a great person, said this 400 years ago, when so to speak women knew their places, and he had no pressure. Well, he just didn't have a pressure to be able to say these things. But the point is, you do not find this kind of uh, of uh, of a um, of a discussion until modern times. And most of the people that use this approach are saying this because of the fact that they are reacting to modern um, pressures. The Marao was not reacting to any pressures when he said this. So therefore he was saying this purely because he considered this the truth. Therefore I give it way more credibility. Something which I feel that a person that does it because he's searching for truth, rather than as a result of pressure, or caving in to the... the, pressures of society and to the mores of society, the Merah was definitely not doing that. The the, the way the Gemara says it is the promise that is in promise to the women is greater than the one given over to men. What that means already is a little ambiguous. So therefore, you know, I hear your point. I'm not sure exactly. Does it mean greater? Does it mean easier? Does it mean easier to achieve? Well, let's just talk about the other side of the coin for, for a second about where you know, who gets a greater reward as a result of something. In other words, we know no pain, no gain. right? We also know that we don't look for trouble. Now, I'll give you a very good example. If you go through the counting, you come across a very significant thing. You know, in the count of the Shvatn, most of the tribes, you have 50, 60, 70,000 Jews over there. You come to the tribe of Levi, the greatest of all tribes, the ones that were more intellectually endowed, and they studied Torah and everything else, you come, you know how many uh, they had in Shaved Levi? 22,000. And that's counting from one month and up. If you count the other ones, you get 50, 60 from 20 and up. The count, you know, when they took the census, the census was you had to be age 20. So they counted people from age 20 and up and you got like 50, 60,000 in the tribe. They counted Shaved Levi from age one month, 30 days and up, and they only came up with 22,000. From age 30 and up, they only had 8,000, approximately 8,000. According to the calculation, it comes out that from age 20 and up, they had about 12,000 or so. That's less than half of the smallest tribes. Now, why would that be? Shaved lady Levi, out of all tribes, how could they be so small? Let me explain what that means. Paro enslaved the Jewish people. And the reason why Paro enslaved the Jewish people was, it was a form of birth control. That's really what Paro said. Paro said, pen, um, yerba, right? They're going to increase and multiply, and there's going to be too many Jews. He wanted to keep their birth rate down, so he enslaved them, and he persecuted them, and he gave them all this kind of trouble and stuff to keep husbands and wives away. And through persecution, their numbers will be diminished. So therefore, God says, pen, Pen I say Kain This, by the way, maybe is where the expression of Kain Yirbu comes from. Kain was really a, um, a promise that God said that you, Paro, say that I'll keep their numbers down. I will show you that their numbers are going to be increased. As you're trying to keep their birth rate down, I'm going to miraculously cause their birth rate to go up. And they had six in one shot. right? So it comes out that because of their suffering that they had, they were rewarded with a miraculous increase in numbers. Shavit Levi, on the other hand, they basically avoided the persecution in Egypt. They didn't. Ha- how did they avoid it? Basically, because of the fact that that Levi lived longer than all the other tribes, and he was able to give over to his children their um, the ability. You see, the persecution in Egypt started as a result of assimilation. The Jews wanted to be more like the Egyptians. Pharaoh started saying, "Okay, you know what? Help us out. Become part of us," and eventually pulled the rug out from under them and they wound up having to become enslaved. So the persecution resulted from assimilationist tendencies. Levi, who survived um, all the other tribes, kept his kids and and his generations from assimilating with the Egyptians. And as such, they never entered into the problem of assimilation, and therefore they were able to avoid the persecution and the enslavement, which is a good thing. But they also didn't have this divine blessing. They weren't persecuted, therefore there was no pen-yerbu, there was also no year yerbu So what do we see from that? We see from there this concept that no very pain, often, no, no pain, no gain. It, it doesn't mean that, that, that therefore so, so it was bad that Lady wasn't persecuted, of course not. The fact that they weren't persecuted shows that they were on a higher lofty level spiritually. But on the other hand, they also have the downside. There's a downside. The downside is they didn't have this particular blessing. They only increased naturally. They didn't increase supernaturally. The other tribes increase supernaturally, but they also have to suffer the persecution. So the same kind of a thing. You take, you know, women don't have to learn Torah, men have to learn Torah, but there's a downside and an upside to everything. It's easier for a woman maybe to get to Olam Haba, but then again, no pain, no gain. It works both ways. There's a downside and an upside to everything. A woman on her own can obligate herself and voluntarily do more, but the idea is she doesn't have to. The point is that if she doesn't, so she won't reach us far. <laughs> a man has a downside. Okay. You're <laughs> given the choice, is what it is. You could get to Olam Haba easier and quicker. I mean, the truth is, if you yeah, look if at many it. Many women bring on, they three times a day. They they said, no, but them. even more than that, you find mm-hmm. among baltruvas, or among people that are not religious, the women are more spiritually attuned to, let's say, you know, once they see the truth, it's easier for them to make the change. They're more willing to say, let's, let's join. Let's mm-hmm. join and become part of the community. A man, he has all his vices, I mean, they're full of vices, and it's very difficult for them to outgrow their vices. And therefore you need the whole discipline of Torah to do it. But if a person doesn't have the discipline of Torah, it's practically impossible for a man to change. A woman, by virtue of her, her more spiritual nature, is more closely attuned to being able to, when she sees the truth and recognizes it, she's able to act on it. She does not have all of these vices that even when you see the truth, you pretend you don't see it and then do that you see something you hear something it sounds true and it's good but then you come up with all kinds of reasons why it's not true because you don't want to change you don't that, rationalize it, you exactly you see something intuitively as we were talking in the car about intuition that you intuitively see something and you recognize it and you see the truth and that's it you act on it men you see it you don't want to see it you therefore cover it up Oh. That it's tickless? Yeah. It's a, a, okay. But the same place the, the same place where it says that the next Brahman says, nevertheless, an Isha can still learn Torah on her own. In other words, you shouldn't teach them because of the fact that they are not uh, obligated. Right. But okay. they themselves voluntarily can do it. Okay. Now, what do you think about a theory that would I just want there, to know. There, no, th- I'll tell you. There's a lot of truth to it for a very simple reason. I want to hear. Okay. That um, based on the fact that there has to be a certain uh, division of labor in in the household or in a Jewish home, as a result of that, the person that's going to be occupied with taking care of the babies, having six in one shop, is obviously going to approach Torah study in a very haphazard manner, will not be able to do it. Just opportunities aren't really there. So therefore, Hashem made it in such a way that they don't need it as much. They are more spiritually tuned, so it's easier for them to get to Olam Havro. And therefore, their other tasks that, aren't gonna, that are going to be taking up their time, they won't have to go through the rigor of Torah study. Men, on the other hand, are freed from that particular obligation, but they also have this internal need to rigorously discipline themselves because they needed more. If men fail, they go all the way down. Women have an easier way of getting to Olam On the other hand, if a man works hard enough, then he can make it. And then the Shalom HaSani that he says is a, as a blessing, is, is truthful. In other words, there's a downside and an upside to everything. Yeah, go, yes, right. Oh, what kind of opportunity? Uh, well, the truth is we have to, one time we're going to learn the Rambam, well, I have to do that one time, about olam Habba and vis-a-vis this world, what this world is in relation to the next world. So I think it's an important idea to understand how the Torah views this world as opposed to the next world. When I say world of opportunity, I mean to say that it's like, the example that I've given a number of times is that if you win a lottery, and you're given a choice of two prizes, a six-month vacation cruise with a QE2 around the world, or you're given two hours in Fort Knox. Which would you take? Even though it's going to be very hot and stuffy and everything else, you'll take the two hours in Fort Knox. Most people would take that. But the idea is you got to schwitz very hard for that. You've got to struggle and strain yourself. But it's worth it because you're thinking of it in terms of an opportunity. The two hours that you're having is an opportunity. The six months is a vacation, that's reward. This is not a world of reward, this is a world of opportunity. Don't think of it in terms of relaxation, it's a world of grabbing the gold. The relaxation is somewhere else, that's what I mean. Basically, when we talk about opportunity, we mean a spiritual opportunity. In terms of physical thing, you have to be a fool to spend 70 years of your life for opportunity. You might as well enjoy it. I mean, spend 10, 20 years doing it, it's like the guy that, makes you know a million dollars a year and he invests it all in his office that his office should look beautiful the idea is you want a decent work environment in the office to earn money but you want to bring the money home and build a nice house the same kind of thing life in this world no life in this world in a spiritual sense you want it to be physically pleasing because you want it to be a pleasant surrounding in order that you should be able to function properly but you don't want to invest your entire energy just in this world you want to take the bulk of it Home with you. It's just like the guy that goes to work in his office. You want a nice office, but that's not what you're working for. You're not working to have a nice office. You're working to have a nice home. So in a spiritual sense, it's the same thing. You want to have this, this balance, the balance of having a pleasant physical existence here. But in terms of opportunity, we're talking about the spiritual opportunity. You're not going to spend 70 years of life just to have physical opportunity. You want to enjoy the physical. But in, in terms of spirituality, it's a spiritual opportunity. In any case, um, no. she's asking is an excellent question, and we're going to have to deal with it one time as a separate session, which is, what you're asking is this question, and let me just rephrase what you're saying, which is that if it's true that the reward is over there, and this world is a world of opportunity, then how come when the Torah says, do mitzvahs for reward, the reward that it gives are rewards in this world? Why does it talk about the main reward, which is the reward of the the next world, so at the time I said something along with the Ramban's approach, which is the fact that that's obvious. But that was just I wasn't trying to answer the question as much. We'll get into that as a, that's a separate issue. Oh, so okay, man. so now what are we holding here? Okay. Um, let, let, okay. Let's let's okay. let's get to the last to, to the last pasuk. Vayikach sefer habris. This is from Shabbaton, by the way, so you won't get it in Friday's reading, but. Um, The Jews said, everything that Hashem tells us, we will obey, we will do, and we will listen to. Famous Famous expression from the Jewish people. Now, uh, so the Gemara says the following. He went to the Ishmaelites, he went to the children of Esau, and he tells them, you know, I have this terrific thing, this Torah, do you people want it? So they said, well, let's get a free sample, you know, like, uh, give us a taste. Tell us what it says in it. Marks they what does it say in the Torah? So Hashem tells one of them, you know, um, it says, don't kill. Don't kill? Well, you realize that our forefather uh, Yitzchak told us, this is of talking, you will live by your sword. You know, that's our, that's our parnosa. Our way of making our income is by plundering people. I mean, you know, the Vikings. Go over to the Vikings and you tell them, um, the Torah says, "Don't, don't steal." The Torah says, "Not and murder." I mean, that's what we do all day. We rape and pillage. What do we do? We pillage villages, right? I mean, that's just what we do all day. He goes over to the Ishmaelites, do sin up, don't commit adultery." He said, "Listen, that's you know our bread and butter." And uh, basically, he went to all the nations, and when they asked, "What does it say in the Torah?" They all said, "It doesn't appeal to us." They refused it. Came to the Jewish people. And we all know how the joke goes, they said, how much does it cost free, we'll take two tablets then, you know, we we'll take two of them. But in any case, the Jews said, and v'nishma, the Jews said, we will, gladly, will accept it all, right? No strings attached. No strings attached, exactly, Hebrew Gemara. Who has, it, who has it, does anybody have a question on that Gemara? What do you mean, the grain turned down the Torah book that says, don't kill or don't steal? Isn't that one of the seven yeah, yeah, right. They have to hold by the, the seven mitzvahs of Noach, Right, And in their mitzvahs, they're not allowed to kill or steal either. So they didn't so, know that then. No, yes, they were already commanded then. God wants to now give the, the Torah to, to the Jewish people. This is going on in the time of Moshe. These are the B'nai Ishmael, the B'nai Esau. So they're already commanded from Noah. You're, you're not allowed to kill and you're not allowed to steal anyway. So it's a little strange that uh, they say, give us a sample of what in the Torah. So Hashem sort of said, don't eat pork. Here he tells them, "Don't kill, don't." Kill. I mean, they, they were obligated. True, but why? is so that he have so said, he told "Don't." Each thing, the one thing he knew they wouldn't get help. That's also true. You're right, that's but what it like. yeah, that's what it sounds like. You're right, but also, why, why didn't God then say, "Hey, you people are obligated to do this anyway"? What? They were obligated not to kill and steal anyway. That's right. So you have to understand what was their reply. Say, "Well, this is our income." So what do you mean it's your income? You know how to do it. Well, let's first look a little bit at some of what the Gemara says. What did the Jews say when they said Naseh Let's take a look at the first Gemara that we have over here. It says, Va'yi'er va'yivoker yom ha'shishi He'yeseh or It says, Merameid, third line down, She'hisna ha'kodesh in my separations God made a deal with creation V'omar wa'hem the makavum ha'torah if the Jews accept the Torah, the we will have a world. If the Jews will not accept the Torah, the world will go back to being null and void. The world was created for the Jewish people to observe the Torah, or for some nation to observe the Torah. Without Torah observance, there is no purpose for the creation of the world. And the reason, of course, is pretty obvious. I mean, it sounds a little strange, but it's pretty evident that God didn't create a world just for it to exist and to go on and on. You don't create a human being in life just so that he should reproduce another human being and exist and exist. There has to be an ultimate purpose, and that ultimate purpose is the betterment of the human being, that he should be able to, like what well, we, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago from Ben Azai, Zed Sefer told us that. what is the chronicles of man? What is the man all about? He was created in the image of God. Kedoshim tiu, God says, you should be holy, Kikolosh Ani Because I am holy. You can emulate me, and by coming closer, to being what God is, you can achieve a certain sense of creativity and become the spiritual person and therefore achieve the ultimate reward of being this spiritual being. So there has to be a purpose for creation. The purpose for creation was that man should emulate God and become godlike and become creative like God. So therefore God says, if Torah is going to be accepted and people will live by Torah, there's a purpose for creation. If not, the world is worthless. So, Dorosh Simo'i The next thing Bisho Dimu Yisrael When the Jewish people made the significant statement of saying Nasav l'nishma We will do and we will listen What they did was they said We will perform before we will listen The general procedure is First let's understand Then we will obey Here the Jews said We will obey before they even understood it By doing that that was so significant, it says 600,000 Malochim came down, each Jew was given two crowns, spiritual crowns. One crown corresponding to nasa, one crown corresponding to Nishma. And let's look at the next little brief Gemara. It says, Omer Abelotzer, Bisho she'ekdimu Yisrael nasa l'Nishma. When the Jewish people said nasa before they said Nishma, yotz Baskol, a heavenly voice came out and said, Omer lohen." Who informed my children of this great secret? That only angels are capable of perceiving this. The, the angels bless Hashem. The powerful ones all say. They perform His will. They perform His will to hear His voice. In other words, first it says say they first perform before they even listen. The Jewish people, by saying massive nishma, we see that when Hashem came to the goyim, what did they do? They said that we will. What does the Torah say? And Hashem tells them things that are part of the shemitzah bnei Noach. That means that these are things that they're obligated for. So first, the goyim start listening. Well, let's see if it makes sense. Then, after they decided that it doesn't make sense to them, they said, "We're not going to accept the Torah." but we know that they're obligated. That was the question that we asked earlier, right? Or that Eddie asked, right? The Jewish people, on the other hand, went totally 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Whatever it is, we will do before we even understand what we're going to do. Understanding will come later. That's a concept which is practically inhuman. It's a concept which is angel-like. Only angels were capable of achieving a level of performance before they fully assimilate and understand it. So what does it mean then? What then does it mean to, to do nasa before you do the nishma? Faith? Well, faith is part of it. What? Faith? Faith. Faith is part of it. But, but there's a certain... There's a deeper concept here. The guy when they said that we don't want to accept the Torah, what does it mean God said, I'll give you Torah? Torah was a form of self-discipline, as we said earlier. It's a way of life. It's a way where you mold yourself to the Torah rather than molding the Torah to fit into your life. When Hashem tells them, you're right, you're obligated, you're not supposed to murder, you're not supposed to kill, but there's obvious reasons for that. The world cannot function without social justice and law. And all the Noahide laws are basically that life should go on. They're forms of social justice, bare minimum things. It's not a form of discipline. It's not a way of where you take your life and you mold it into the Torah in order to spiritually elevate yourself. Hashem says, I want to give you the Torah, that I'll re-give the things that were already given to you. The, the commands that you have not to murder, now it's going to become part of Torah. No longer will it just be, don't kill. It's now a way of life. There are lessons to be derived from it. It means that you have to mold your life to being a passive person, let's say. don't Murder means don't insult someone. It means don't embarrass someone. Don't cause someone's blood to drain from their face because that's a form of murder. When we say don't steal, it means don't make a loud, ruckus noise at night when you're going to rob someone of their sleep. Now, of course, that can't be taken to court, but that's also a form of stealing. When you wake someone up in the middle of the night, you're stealing their sleep. You steal someone's time. There's nothing more precious than stealing time. Right. When we say uh, adultery, well, there are technical ways of avoiding adultery. That's what the Ramban says, no <laughs> vol there are ways that a person could say, well, I'll find a way around it. I'll you know, I'll marry women and divorce them on a day-by-day basis. And you could have a thousand lives like that. You, you, you could skirt the law. The idea is that, sure, there are ways of keeping social justice, but you're not going to mold your life to that. Hashem says, I'll give you the seven Noahide laws. I'll give it to you again in the form of Torah. The Goyim said, no, we cannot mold our lives to that. Yes, we're stuck and we're saddled with the problem of how to rape and pillage without going into any technical infractions of the law of murder. We'll have to to find a way of doing that. I don't know how we're gonna do it. But the point is, it's a problem. We're not allowed to murder. It's a problem that we have to solve. So what happens is that, well, euthanasia isn't murder, it's good for for the world. I mean, basically what happens is that if you have laws based on social mores, then you'll start saying that, you know, in ancient Sparta, they would take uh, sick children and say, hey, they're better off not being alive, and leave them out to die. Among certain cultures, I don't know, anybody read the New York Times a number of months ago about what's going on in India, when, you know, you have a female child, you don't want to have female children, you let them die. So, basically, morality that's based on on social conduct is always changeable. Euthanasia, abortion, whatever the issues may be. But if you have to mold your life to what the Torah sees as being something, you have to elevate yourself spiritually to to understand what that is all about. That's what Hashem said that, I want to give you the Torah. The Goyim said, let's see if it fits into our life. Let's see if it it could be assimilated into our lifestyle that we have on our own. The Jewish people said, nasa we will perform first and thereby allowing our lifestyle to become assimilated to the Torah we will, it's like when the Jews came to America in the 30s, you know, um, well, Shabbos can't be kept in America, six-day work week, you're not going to be able to do it. So some people said, in America, the Torah doesn't work. Others said, no, Torah has to work no matter what. I have to mold my life to Torah. I have to nasa perform the Torah, and then there will be a nishma. Ultimately, Hashem wants there to be a nishma. There has to be an understanding. It has to become assimilated into you and become an integral part of the human being. It has to become part of you. But the way that it becomes part of you is by first having nasa. If you go with the premise that the Torah is a way of self-discipline, it's a way of making your life, and molding your life into something great, by doing that, you will then, when you finally understand things, you'll be that great person. If you start the other way, where it has to be understood first, then you want the Torah to be understood to you. That's no good. You want the Torah to independently be there because it's the supreme truth. And you want yourself to achieve the understanding of that supreme truth. So you must have the nasa before you have the nishma, because only if you have the nasa first can the nishma that finally comes be the Torah's nishma, be what the Torah wants to teach you. You don't learn Torah, Torah teaches you. That's the way it's supposed to be, be understood. We don't learn Torah. Torah is constantly teaching us lessons. It teaches us and it makes us better, it elevates us spiritually. You have to have the nasa, then you will get a nishma. That's what the Jewish people understood when they were at Sinai. They understood that Torah is now, that's being given to them, is not something just a bunch of body of laws. It's a way of molding our lives to certain spiritual truths. Therefore they said nasa before they said nishma. Afterwards, yeah. in fact, on, on forum, when we really mm-hmm. understood it and then did it, right. And that's what... Right, right. Ultimately, that, no, that's what I was saying. That the final right. point. The final point <laughs> is you need the nishma. You can't go through life only with a nasa, you cannot perform mitzvahs by rote. And being a person who's, if you look on the third page, I have a thing from the Sefer HaChinuch. I wanted to get to it, and that would explain this concept that you're touching on now, which is the proper approach to to doing mitzvahs. Why the Torah was given in such a manner of we teach people by rote, and then we finally understand things. We're not going to be able to get to that. So, Tana Rabanan, page two on the bottom. Oni v'ashe Boyin ladin A poor person comes to Judgment Day above A rich person comes And a wicked person comes We'll explain what all these three different people really are They're going to come to judge, Judgment Day And they're going to say, hey, how come you didn't learn any Torah? So the poor person, they say, hey, how come you didn't study Torah? So what is he going to reply? The obvious reply I'm too busy with my living. In Omer the I was a poor person in the Torah, and I was busy trying to make a living. So Omerim Law will tell him the following. Were you poorer than Hillel? Hillel, we know, is the greatest, one of the greatest sages of his generation. And he'll say, were you poorer than Hillel? How poor was Hillel? Let's see how poor he was. Omerim about Hillel Hazaken. The story about Hillel Hazaken before he became the great Hillel, he used to go to a of HaMedrash to listen to Torah from Shemaiah and Aftalian. Who were Shemaiah and Aftalian? They were the top sages in Israel in the generation before Hillel. Most people don't realize they were also Gerim, or descendants of Gerim. They were not even, they were originally from non-Jewish stock. Now, Hillel was a woodchopper. He didn't live in the Kolo, they didn't have any of that stuff in those days. They didn't have any way of making money. You had to go out and earn a living, and there was no food stamps, no welfare, nothing. So to earn a living, you had to do anything. And the only thing that he was able to do to provide himself with a living was that he became a woodchopper. Now, I don't know if anybody ever chopped down a tree. I once tried it in my backyard. It is one of the, the most miserable jobs you could possibly have. I mean, it is terrible. I mean, I you know, you go to, uh, in Canada, they have these lumberjacks. They eat like 35 pancakes for breakfast, full of syrup. You know why? Because you need it. <laughs> you chop down the tree, you need it. I mean, it took me about a week to chop down the tree, and oh, it was, it was grueling. In any case, so Hill was a wood chopper. So it's a pretty um, tough job. So he worked every day, and how much did he earn? He earned umistnake trepic. He made a trepic, a trepic. For all those that want to know, is a half a diner. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> half the dinner. Well, I would like for it. I think it's half the dinner. Maybe it's two like a dinner. buck a week. Well, you, you'll be able to figure out from the context of how much it winds up being worth. Half of it he used as an entrance fee to get into the Beis Hamedrash. So obviously they couldn't have charged too much to get into the Beis Hamedrash. Yeah, or they charged a few dollars to get in half of whatever he earned in a day was just the minimal entrance fee to get into the shul in order to be able to listen to the Talmudic discourses taking place. Um, Very good question. You know, it's funny. I I saw someone that discussed that. why they charged. The reason, by the way, why they charged is because in those days they had, the shuls were located not in the city. They were out in the field and they had to pay a guard to like watch it to make sure that the right person comes in. And he had to have his... uh, (laughs) He would make a living. <laughs> I mean it was obviously a minimal fee. Because you know, uh the heat or whatever. Right. So but an air so conditioning so can can how, how, how much you can imagine how much he's making. Yeah. If they charged five dollars to get in, so that means he's earning ten dollars a day. I mean, let's use modern terminologies. They charge maybe five dollars to get in. So it means he's earning ten dollars a day and he gives five dollars of it to get in. So he's yeah. left with five dollars to support his family. One time was a Friday, he just, uh, I guess he wasn't able to sell the wood choppings to anybody because no one was going to burn it Friday night maybe, whatever the case may be. He didn't make any money. So He couldn't even get into the of HaMedrush. What bothered him, it didn't bother him that there was no food in the house. What bothered him was the fact that he wasn't able to get into the of HaMedrush to listen to the Torah. And the guy in charge was a pretty cruel guy, he did not let him in. Now here he said, listen, I'll give you on, on credit. Hill, your credit by me is no good. I'm not letting you in. <laughs> right. Well, this is the shomer in charge. If you if you ever go to a rebbe for a bracha, you'll you'll know that the gabbai in charge of letting you in is not exactly the same thing as the Rebbe. And this is an old tradition. So what did he do? It says, "Ola v'nitlevi yoshav al pi aruba." It did not mean that he went to Aruba on vacation. Uh, That's not what he did. <laughs> All of the nitle, the Yoshav al pi aruba. He climbed up to the roof, and there was a skylight there. And he decided he's going to listen in from the skylights. He climbed up to the roof to listen. Sure enough, although he was living in Israel, he climbed up on the roof. He went up because he wanted to hear the words of the living God from Shmaya of In other words, the only reason why a person is willing to do this. Why does a person go up to the roof to listen to Torah not because it's an intellectual exercise. It's because you recognize that Torah is divrei alokim Chaim, is the word of the living God and you cannot miss it. You want to hear it because it's important to miss it. This is God's word. You want to hear it. You're dying to hear it. You're willing to climb up on the roof to listen to it. For the it cold day. Oh. Anybody knows what happens? Yeah. It oh, snowed it. that day. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. snow very often in Israel. It snowed that day. It's it's day. Days. It's days. Right. We'll skip a little bit of the story, but what happened, because I don't want to go through the whole thing inside, what happened basically was it snowed, and he got halfway frozen to death. And he's laying over there listening, and all of a sudden it's snowing on him. Next morning, Shemai and Atalian come in, they wanted to give their lesson, and they noticed that, hey, there's a little bit of uh, cloudiness in the basement, the, the light's not shining in, they didn't have electric lights in those days, so they have to have it from the skylight, it was a little dark. They look up, right. They have skylights. skylight is basically just a... Uh, they, look me- yeah. they look up and they see the outline of a human being up there. So they go, hey, what's going on? They climb up there, and the guy was snowed under five feet of snow. They they cut off, they, 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 they clean him up, bring him down into the fire. The guy was halfway dead. From that point on, I think they let him in for free. Mm-hmm. The point is, Hero was a very poor person and poverty did not stop him from learning Torah because he recognized that it's Kim Chaim. ultimately he became the nasi, he became the prince of the Jewish people be- by virtue of his Torah learning he became the prince and he probably wasn't poor at that point and from him descended the noble line of Rabiura. I'm not and all the great people were all descendants of Hillel Wasn't that wrong though not to take care of his family? He should Example, a yes, I, w- I would say that that's the correct answer. You have a, a very good question. And I and would I say... Th- from what I've learned. Right. You're 100% right, and I think the answer is going to have to be what Corinne said, which is that this was a uh, you know agreed upon an agreed-upon procedure. Now let's go... So that's Oni. So what is the Gomorrah effect saying? The Gomorrah effect is saying that a poor person that comes to heaven and wants to give an excuse, they parade out hill... And they say look how great you could become even though your poverty struck you don't have an excuse next next story we'll say the next two stories outside already the rich person comes in they ask him how come you're not funding torah so what does the rich person say any volunteers who's busy doing deals i'm busy doing my business deals now what kind of a stupid excuse is that I mean, you know, a poor person, I understand. I mean, he has to eat. But what is the rich person? I mean, you're He's talking lost. to God over here. No. Oh, exactly. I mean, listen, look at me. What, what am I worth? Um, my millions are going to a good, worthy cause. Hashem says, no, you got to learn Torah. It's not enough to go make money. Everybody, every Jew, whether rich or poor, is obligated to learn Torah. All of us. No matter what you are, no matter what your station and status and life are, you're obligated to learn Torah. The rich person says, but what do you mean I'm doing so many good works? I have so many great things. I'm so busy with it. So I'm busy, and you know, if I miss a few hours of learning of my business deals, I could lose tons of money. You know, the poor person finds he needs bread, he begs it. But I mean, an hour of Torah study could be worth a million dollars. A million dollars an hour of Torah study. But what happens when 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 the person comes up there and he says that he's rich and he's just too busy making business deals? I mean, like he's constantly pestered by the office and they call him and they tell him all kinds of things. Every hour. You know how it is. Right, you, you get <laughs> called. You, you, they drive you crazy. They don't give you a minute peace. The guy says, listen, I went through my life. I was not given a minute of peace because of the fact that I'm constantly swamped with these business deals. They parade out a person called Rabbi Loza bin Kharsan. <clears throat> right, Rabbi Loza bin Kharsan. Rabbi Loza bin Kharsan inherited a thousand villages. Or storehouses, whatever it is. And he inherited a fleet of a thousand ships. Maybe that was an exaggeration. The number of thousands used as an exaggeration, perhaps. The idea is that he had a thousand storehouses or villages on land, and he owned a thousand, a fleet of a thousand ships at sea. He never once spent a minute doing that. He took a um, keg of flour, placed it on his shoulder, and went from city to city to, uh, to learn Torah. One time he was caught by some of his servants. They didn't recognize him because they never met him. And they tried making him do some hard labor over there. He paid him off, whatever it is. He never once occupied himself with the business deals. Now, again, this is an exceptional human being. And we not necessarily are capable of doing that. But the point is, you see, that it's possible. It's possible to become a great sage and still be swamped with business deals and not have anything to do with it. It can be done. Then we have the third person. Who is the third person? The Russia. What do we mean by a Russia? Well, Russia is not necessarily a wicked person. It means a person who has, who's constantly under temptation. Hey, you yeah, he did listen to the tape. A person who's constantly besieged by temptation. A guy that has vices, you know, he goes to alcoholics anonymous, and he has to go to gamblers anonymous, and he has to go to, you know, whatever it is. The guy is constantly beswamped by, by taking care of his Yetzirah. In other words, I have the Yetzirah and, and I'm constantly battling it. I don't have time for Torah study. I don't have time to better myself, but I'm constantly besieged with um, with temptations that I have to worry about. And look at me, I'm, you know, I'm this good-looking fellow, and uh, what can I do, you know, like uh, they're just swamping me all the time. Mm-hmm. So they, who they parade out? They parade out a very famous person in Jewish history, Yosef Atzadik. Yosef Atzadik was a very good-looking boy, and when he was 17 years old, he was enticed by by the wife, Potipharah, for illicit purposes. And it said that she went to the point of getting dressed specially for him in the morning, and she put on evening gowns in the evening. She changed her clothes twice a day in order to keep enticing him and seducing him. Every day, on a daily basis, she tried to seduce him. And he was a very handsome guy, Yosef. In any case, we also know that Yosef was the traditional... Um, heir of Yaakov in terms of Torah study. So we find that a person that he could be swamped of business, he could be poverty struck, he could be beset by temptation, there is no excuse given for for not, not studying Torah. Now what does this all mean to us? Does it mean that, that every one of us has to become hero or a bin ben or any of these things? No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is that nobody has an excuse. A person could come and say, I'm ignorant. I don't know any Torah, I have no background. Yeah, you know, I just became from now, so how can I possibly know anything? Well, they'll parade out. Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Kiva was forty years old. He never studied Torah in his life, and he became the greatest sage in Israel, a person with no background at all. And out comes Rabbi Kiva, showing him that that's not an excuse. A person could say, "I'm not gifted. I'm not a gifted individual." Well, they'll parade out. You know the famous story. I think I mentioned it a couple of times with the fishermen and the al novi where Eliyanovi you know, meets this fisherman he asks him, what do you do for a living? He says, I'm a fisherman. He said, do you study Torah? No. Why? I don't have a head for it. He says, That's what everybody says. What do you do, for a living? And he shows him what he does for a living. He says, if God gave you brains for that, he gave you brains to study Torah. There is no excuse for not studying Torah. And Torah study, as we saw earlier, is basically the way that the Jew elevates himself to become this great thing that God made a deal with creation that without Torah study, there is no creation. Is question of studying or Both, but the idea is to nasa the the purpose of mitzvah performance, which we would, I, I, you know, like it's a shame we can't get into that, is to ultimately assimilate it and make it an, an, an integral part of the human being to better you. The purpose of doing the mitzvahs is to make you more aware, to make you more spiritually attuned to what you really are, and a person that does by rote. If you pray every day to Hashem, it teaches you gratitude. It teaches you not to take things for granted. All mitzvahs basically do that. Whatever mitzvah does, it basically teaches you lessons of of midos. It teaches you lessons of ethics and character. Now, the truth is we don't even have to go as far as Hillel and as far as Kiva. I know many of you are familiar with this Russian um, Rabbi Esses in Israel. He was in your shul. In your shul. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if many of you realize that he was, till the age of 30, he had no background. He was a completely self-taught individual in Russia. He took a humvish, he took different things, and he now is a tremendous Talmud Chochem. Yeah. And not only is he a tremendous Talmud Chochem, but he reached the point of where he's able to influence thousands and thousands of people. And the whole gal movement in Russia this rebirth of this renaissance of Torah and Judaism in Russia is all to a great extent thanks to this individual and the self-sacrifice that he went through. I mean the stories that he has are phenomenal of what what he had to go through to perform the mitzvahs. It's unbelievable. When you take it in, He was a mathematician He was a mathematician in Russia. Mathematics he professor, and he taught himself. He was everything. a self-taught. Everything so that he knows he in Torah he's a complete self-taught. Person. Right. He would know anything. He started reading. 20 miles because so they wouldn't let him off work early. And he said he went out in the dark of night in Moscow snow, and he walked 20 miles to And what was he before that? He was a professor of mathematics in the university. <laughs> Completely self-taught. You take an individual like that, and he's the indictment for us. We don't need a hill to be an indictment to be snowed under for five uh, you know, feet of snow. This Rabbi S. Is, is an indictment for all of us. You know, one of the great Bali Muster once said he took one of his students, and he went to the window and he said, look out there, what do you see? He says, I see people going back and forth. And he says, no, you know what I see? I see a, a lebedig forest Forest, a living cemetery. What does that mean? Is each person that's walking down the street is, walking, is a walking monument. He's a walking monument where it's etched on it, here lies so-and-so. The so-and-so is the potential that he could have been. If you don't meet that potential, by not meeting that potential, you are destroying a living human being, an organism that could have existed, that's not there anymore. You're a monument to what you could have been to your potential. And each person, that's what we say, the same Bisar b'sarasechor, each person has his unique qualities that he could re- achieve a chelik torah We don't ask God, give us someone else's chelik of torah The same Bisar b'sarasechor, give us our chelik in Torah each person has his own on Rosh Hashanah and on, uh, on we say uh, each person's mission in life everybody has their own mission if you fulfill that mission you reached your fulfillment if you don't, you destroyed a potential human being you're a walking monument to the potential that you could have been and therefore for that indictment we don't have to go to Hillel you take this Rabbi Esses and he's an indictment for us another interesting story that well, I want to say a story from Rosh from Shavadroon, the Magad of Yerushalayim. He set up a very interesting story. You know, also teaches us how to view Torah study. There was once this individual who was a, uh, an ignoramus, and he was living in, uh, in Yerushalayim, in Meishorim. And in Meishorim there used to be a shear given on a daily basis by a local uh, Talmud Chochem, who between Minch and Ma'ar would give a Gomorrah shir for about an hour. So, you have people gathering around, that listened to the She'er, and they learned whatever they learned. This individual, Amart, this ignoramus, would walk in, and he'd come on a daily basis every day just to sit and listen. He didn't understand a word of what was going on. He came on a daily basis to listen, to listen to the words of Torah. And so they figured, listen, you know, it's not, no harm being done. Let the guy come and listen. He never asked a question, never said anything, never made a comment, because he doesn't know anything. He just sat and listened. But they figured it's also a commendable thing. One day, someone goes over to the rabbi who was giving the shear and he says, listen, you know, we heard about this individual that uh, his wife isn't exactly very well. She's somewhat sick, and she could use the help around the house. And especially between Minch and Meyer, when he comes for the shear, is a difficult time of the day. She could use help in the house. She could use someone to clean up, whatever it is. You know, maybe you should speak to him and tell him that coming to the shear isn't so important, especially if you don't understand everything. You're better off staying home with your wife and helping her out. He says, okay i'll speak to him about it so one day after the share he like makes it his business to say oh how are you how are things? Shalom Aleichem. um your name this that he says how's your wife um he says, oh, not so well he says so who's taking care of the house well it's a little difficult now he says, you know what maybe it's uh, better that you should be home and help out your wife rather than come to a shear. Uh, you know do you understand anything in the shear really no not really so what do you come for oh, listen he says so don't you think maybe it would be better to at least help your wife out rather than come to the share he said, I'll tell you something. This goes back many years, the story. He says, I was a Jew, I come from Russia. And I don't know how many people are familiar, but you know, before in the days of the Tsar, when they would induct people into the army from the age of ten and eleven, especially Jewish children. And part of it was to brainwash them and to make them into, you know, into Russian soldiers. You would be kept in the army for a period of twenty five years. And this is in the 19th century we're talking about. He says, when I was 11 years old, I was torn from my family. I was inducted into the Russian army. And you can't believe what kind of life you have to go through over there, what they do in terms of your Yiddishkeit. Not only that, but Shabbos, Kashos, these things, I mean, it's phenomenal the amount of mysterious neprish that you have to have to be able to keep it. 25 years I went into that army. They robbed me of my Jewish heritage. They robbed me of my Jewish tradition. For 25 years I was in that army. And every morning, without fail, they make you get up and pledge allegiance to the family, to the Tsar, to Tsar Nikolai Alexandrovich, and to the First Lady Nikolai Alexandrovich, Uh, whatever it is, whatever her name was and all the kids, and all the nephews, and all the nieces, and the brother of the Tsar and the father of the Tsar and the grandfather. You have to go through the whole litany of who the royal families and pledge allegiance to them, day by day, for 25 years. You had that thing memorized cold. He said, for 25 years I went through that. I come out of the army, I come now to Israel, I'm living here, and I realize that I don't understand any Gemara. I don't understand the Torah. I'm going to come up to heaven, and they're going to say to me, and they're going to say, do you study any Torah? I don't know any Torah. Do you at least know the royal family? Do you at least know God's family? Do you know who Abaye is? Do you know who Rebekiva is? Do you know who Hillel is? Do you know any of these names? I come at least to hear the royal family. To hear the family of God, the family of Hashem. I should at least familiarize myself with the names. Then when I come up to heaven, if I know Nikolai Alexandrovich and Nikolai and and the first lady and all the kids and all the princes and everything else, at least let me know there's a hill, there's a Rabbi Kiva, and God will say, this, this much at least I know. They robbed me of my heritage, at least let me know the family of God. When they heard that they said, okay, you know, you're a unique individual. This kind of a person is an indictment for all of us, that even if a person is ignorant and doesn't know anything, but at least know the royal family. At least when you come up to heaven and God speaks to you about Torah, at least familiarize yourself with something. Most of us know when Jesus was born. How many of us know when Moshe Rabbeinu was born? You know, we all know Jesus was born December 25th. How many people know that Moshe Rabbeinu was born Zion Ador? Moshe Rabbeinu. How many people know that? He was born when? Zayin Ador. The seventh day of Ador. How many people know that? Very few. And this is among Jews that are semi-educated already. They just don't know that. Can you imagine going up to heaven and they're going to tell you, yes, you know when Jesus was born, but you don't know when Moshe Rabbeinu was born? You don't know the bare minimum? Now all of us know. But the idea is that the indictment of Torah is so severe in our times that we know so much about the surrounding culture, about surrounding society, and we know so little, so little about the Torah, so little about the royal family, that when we're going to come up to heaven, the great indictment that they're going to have is they're not going to have to go pull out a hill. They're not going to have to go pull out people that sacrificed 2,000 years ago. They'll pull out a Rabbi Esses. They'll pull out this Jew from Russia. They'll pull out any bal any person that came from nowhere and he struggles and he breaks his teeth to find his way back, and he's able to find his way back, and he comes back and he becomes a Talmud I learned with many people that, that they break their teeth on the Gemara, but they come time after time. They want to learn it and they want to know it. All these people are there to to they, they'll crack their teeth on it, but they feel they must know these are the people that are going to indict all of us and they will only indict the ignorant ones among us they'll indict all the rabbis also because you as a rabbi are capable of learning more and if you see how much this guy is struggling that he'll listen to a shear for an hour and leave his wife at home because he wants to know the royal family if he's capable of that then it's an indictment on you for not knowing more it's an indictment for each and every one of us when you take a person like rabbi esses that walks 20 miles in the snow to keep shabbos then it's an indictment on each and every one of us that, hey, you know, we're given an opportunity to keep Shabbat so much easier, and we don't. These are the, our indictments, not the indictments of the great sages of Hillel and Shammai, the regular Baal nowadays, the regular simple peasant Russian person, or these people. These are all the people that are going to indict us for the fact that we are capable of so much more. We are all walking monuments of our potential that we could be, and if we're not that, we're, we're, we're walking monuments. Like this Russian that I was talking about, by him one of the hardest things was to stop smoking. He said that was the last thing that he did. I mean, he, he went through a bris mila. He came out of Russia, he didn't have a bris. And he went through a circumcision, he says, that's easy. But on a day by, you know, week by week basis, he was a chain smoker to stop smoking. But he says, I didn't feel Shabbos, even though I kept everything else, until the last thing clicked. When that thing went in, when I stopped smoking, then the whole Shabbos fell into place. And that's when I felt the spirit of Shabbos only when I took it all. He only stopped smoking on Shabbos. Okay. Yeah, well, we're talking about not smoking on Shabbos. But so he kept all the other laws of Shabbos, but he finally stopped smoking. He said, it's already been 15 weeks. I and mean, he was in my house for Shabbos. He had the cigarette right before Shabbos. He had the pack there. He was already asking me if it's okay for him to take the cigarette to shul so that as soon as Meyer was over, he could start smoking right away. And on Shabbos, when he saw the pack of cigarettes, he said, cover it up, I just can't stand looking at it. He had to have it covered up. I mean, he was really, like he said, he'd hover around that thing the last couple of hours of Shabbos, just like looking at it, waiting, panting away for it. But only when he finally did the last thing, that's when he finally, the entire Shabbos fell in for him. These are the things. Because you're lighting a fire. Same as lighting a fire. No, but you're not supposed to burn. You, you know, each time you inhale, you cause more burning, yeah. On the altar, you're allowed to. But that's a technical thing. But in any case, the point is that these are the people that indict us for our potential that we could be. And it doesn't mean that you've got to be healed. No one's asking you to be healed. No, no one's even asking you to be your biases. But you have your potential. And that potential has to be fulfilled and, and lived up to. And if you don't do that, that's what they're going to hold you accountable for. For the disenchantment of our